Blog Talk Radio. Another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast and Radio Extravaganza. Coming to you once again live from all around the planet. I'm your host, Nate Larkin. High above the Mellow Mushroom. Actually, that's not true. I am not above the Mellow Mushroom. I am sitting in my own bedroom, as a matter of fact, in Franklin, Tennessee. Joined uh, from San Luis, California by our co-host. I am not in San Luis Obispo. Where are you? (laughs) I am in the bowels of the sailboat in uh, San Francisco Bay in Sausalito, just on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge, oh, rocking you... and rolling on a windy morning here. You dog! Oh, I love Sausalito. That, so, okay, all right, terrific. Well, uh, so we're playing a new game today. Where are uh, the Samson guys? Where are the pirate monks? <laughs> it's, it's so... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, let's do, let's discover where Mondo is. What do you say, well, uh, fearless, fearless engineer I, Mondo? Yeah, man, I'm, I'm good. Man. I, I'm actually kind of freaked out that you said that you were in a uh, high above the mellow mushroom because I don't see you anywhere near me. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so I left, um, and <laughs> and now I'm over at uh, I'm actually downtown Franklin man, at, the, at the Frothy Monkey. Oh, at the Frothy. So. The mo- yeah, yeah okay. over at the Frothy, man. So I'm over here hanging out and uh, kicking it with you guys this morning. Okay. The Frothy, one of two new uh, independent coffee houses that have shown up to challenge Starbucks in the last year in Franklin. I was happy to see both of them. And you haunt both of them, don't you, Mondo? Yeah, I do. I, I mix it up, man. I keep I gotta yeah. keep people guessing. You know, I'll bounce yeah. around a little bit. Okay. That's Down good. with that's the good. corporate whore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Did I use my outside voice? I just went to uh, a, a Nashville independent coffee house yesterday that one of our local Samson guys runs. He's been talking about it for the past few weeks, and I hadn't been there before. It's over by the Green Hills Mall, a place called The Well, a nonprofit yeah. coffee shop. Uh, very funky. Uh, all the, It's uh, all fair trade coffee with fair trade goods. All the profits go to support. Well, worthy causes, and uh, it put me in mind of San Francisco, Aaron, because when I ordered my Yurgachev coffee, uh, I had to wait because they made it a cup at a time via the pour-over method that we don't see around here. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It the pour-over was superb. method. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Newton, where are you? Uh, uh, you were injured in the last week. You're not in the hospital or anything, are you? No, not, not in the infirmary. Uh, I am... Sitting in my office at the Crag, uh, okay. just as always, just you know, a boring Wednesday doing nothing. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, look, tell us. I, I saw this on Facebook that that uh, you had sustained an injury over the uh, over the past week doing something stupid. What yeah. were you doing? Oh, I mean, the, the ultimate stupid. I was rock climbing. Ah, um, yeah. You know, just just doing what I do, and uh, you know. Got myself hurt, but luckily I'm going to get to keep the foot. Uh, they're okay. not going to take it away from me. 
and uh, <clears throat> and even even better when I told my wife on the drive home Friday night that I had messed my foot up, she didn't say, "You're an idiot." She said, "Oh, okay." I guess she's gotten used to my 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 pattern of injury. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was actually it's just a sprain. Um, it, it, really it looks like I've got a, a big a big left hobbit foot is what it yeah. looks like. Okay. It grew so, hair too. That is horrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's what happens when you sprain it. Uh, it swells up like a big water balloon and it gets hairy. Wow. <laughs> okay, um, so, uh, Aaron, what takes you to San Francisco? Well, I was supposed to be on a road trip this week. Yeah. Get some uh-huh. work done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So, since I am not, uh, oh my gosh, sorry, I just had a uh, technical malfunction here on the boat. Um, so, since I'm not, I needed to figure out a way to finish some projects to get oh, some okay. income stream going. So, mm-hmm. I am in my uh, my little writing spot provided by our old pastor pirate friend, Brian Kay. Oh, okay. And I am finishing all the editing on the Soul Architecture book and recording the audio book for book one of uh, The Fallen. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. wow. So you actually thought... Not not leaving the boat until those two are done. Good for you. You you actually thought you were going to get work done on that road trip? Uh, That's funny because I thought you were going to do the driving and I was going to get work done on the the road trip. As it turned out... I knew that's what what you thought. (laughs) (laughs) You you never found a car that you didn't think was your office. That's right, exactly. Amen to that. Uh, Newton's been on the road with me. He knows. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, as it turned out, the road trip is off. The the vehicle that we were going to drive across the country was not yet roadworthy. So I fly out tomorrow to uh, Denver. Looking forward to speaking there for Youth for Christ tomorrow night and meeting with you at YFC staff Friday morning. Going to spend some time with our old friend Matthew Ward there on Friday and visit the Denver Samson Society Friday night, and then uh, Saturday off to Omaha for a men's retreat at a church there and be there for the weekend. Going to speak uh, Saturday and Sunday, uh, Sunday night as well, I guess, and then back home Monday. So uh, full weekend ahead. But uh, man, it's it's good to be with you guys. I'm uh, I'm feeling a little bit like I missed the meeting this week. Allie and I, uh, it's been a very intense week, very emotional week. We've been going to an awful lot of uh, doctor's appointments, therapist appointments, one kind or another. And uh, I missed the meeting on Monday. So I would would really love a meeting. What do you say we go to a break and come back and do a mini-meeting? All right. Let's do it. Okay, cool. Giving up is all we've ever known 
um, that, that my health has been really one of the things that I have um, focused on um, my physical well-being and things that are wrong with me has been something that I've had to focus on and deal with for about the last 10 years, whether it's um, anxiety attacks, um, depression, um, high cholesterol, just all, all kinds of stuff. Um, it's something that I've been wrestling with and trying to manage for, for a long time. And I'll tell you, it it, it bugs me. It wears me out. Um, I mentioned this Monday in our meeting. Uh, I don't do well with managing um, – well, I don't do well when my, my mortality um, is thrown into my face. My, my um, Yeah, when I get injured, uh, when I'm made to feel powerless, uh, I, I don't deal with that well. And the same is true with my health. Um, I don't know that I, I manage it well. I get tired of dealing with um, how I feel and what I eat. And and I feel like I almost can make myself unhealthy by focusing on my health. Uh, and, and so finding a balance around that is something that uh, that I struggle with. Um, just just my physical health, I also tend to be injury prone, uh, which doesn't doesn't help matters much. Um, but any anyhow, um, I, I do know that when from a, a mental and a physical standpoint, when I when I put things in my body uh, that are good for me, I feel better. Um, when I focus on things that are good and not on things that are bad, I feel better. Um, I mean, I guess it really is a, a garbage in, garbage out kind of idea uh, that's not, not breaking new ground. But if I remember what it feels like to treat myself well, um, then it makes it easier for me to be healthy, whether we're talking about physical health, emotional health, spiritual health. Um, so I guess I guess that's kind of what I think of when I think of health. I'll I'll stop there. I'm Newton. Thanks, Newton. Well, I'm Mondo. Hey, Mondo. Hey, Mondo. Mondo. Hey. Uh, well, health is uh, actually something that is. Uh, been a priority of mine this year of well, basically my, the focus of my health has been a priority this year um if you guys remember but i did a 30-day juice fast back in march mm-hmm. um and shed you know about 30 pounds and uh even now i'm going back on a another fast uh similar to that it's uh basically two juices a day and and one meal and uh and I, the reason why I'm doing the second time around, I guess that throughout this year I've realized I've come to grips with my mortality, <laughs> you know, with uh, with uh, the fact that I'm not invincible. Uh, it, it took about 30-some years to shake that invincible mindset, unfortunately. Uh, but, you know, when you, you start seeing things change, you, you start getting different types of doctor's reports. Um, and, you know, it, it having kids and all that, and I, I realized how – much I need them, how much they need me. And for me to treat my body like crap because of my own selfish taste buds or laziness or whatever and and potentially um, affect my my life with my family, um, I, I think that's, that's a poor decision, you know. And 
on my part. And uh, I've really taken a priority to not only change my own eating habits, but also my, my children as well. Uh, the things that I'm feeding them, uh, the the types of things I'm help, helping them with with their lunches, even at school, because we all know the school system serves the best lunches. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, so health health, health is really it, it is it's always been important, but it, it's really at this point taking a priority in my life as far as the decisions that I make. And and regarding my own health, um, I think that mindset travels to other things too, to the types of relationships that I that I uh, that I think, uh, how I take care of my relationships, um, you know, the, how I take care of the community that I'm in, it, it actually reflects on several things. Uh, it's it's a snowball effect. And um, so it, it's it's funny you brought that up, man, because that's that's been a huge thing on, on my mind right now as far as health and how just taking care of your own body and the things that you're consuming and taking care of your family and the things you're consuming, how it, it translates into other areas of your life. So, um so, yeah, so that's me. That's, I'm Mondo. Thanks, Mondo. Well, I'm Aaron. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Aaron. Aaron. I, I think this is a stupid topic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is uh, immediately the, the thing I'm thinking is that there's a point in any project for me, whether it's uh, a recording project or a book project where I'm not really sure if I'm going to finish it, but I'll start it. And then there's a mental shift where I say, okay, I've come this far. Yes, I'm going to finish it. And from that moment, everything mentally changes, becomes very purposeful. And uh, I've really been feeling that way about uh, I haven't been doing certain of the athletic things I did in the past for a couple of years. And uh, my training partner passed away last year, but he's been sick for five years. So that was a a big loss to my physical activity. Uh, and so recently I've just been dabbling with the idea and doing some physical work. But I've seen in the last couple of years how not having that consistent uh, time has affected me. And uh, it's just annoying to me because I know it's the same as with any other mental or intellectual or musical project that I have to get to a certain point and then really make the decision. And I am avoiding that moment for all I'm worth. So it's a stupid topic. That's all I have to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. Uh, thanks, Aaron. I'm David. Um, hey, David. Hey, David. This is a topic that I've given a lot of thought to uh, lately, um, a number of reasons. Some of them I might even get into, uh, you know, later when we talk. But um, I had a birthday last week, and um, it wasn't, you know, a young birthday. And so uh, the older I get, the more focused I become on the fact that I'm my body wasn't designed to live uh, on this earth forever. And uh, but I keep trying to figure out ways to push back, uh, you know, the effects of, of the fall, I guess. And um, But having watched my wife lose her health uh, over many, many years um, and, and it become a very degenerative disease uh, in, her, in her life, my health became um, more and more important to me. 
I have one daughter who's now, you know, 24. She's on her own and, and doing great. But I still have this feeling like I need to live forever for her. So I'm all about now, I you know, uh, I, warding off the heart attack or, or warding off this disease or getting uh, proactive about being checked out. You know, I had two doctor's appointments in the last month just because I wanted to make sure everything was okay. And, um, and, it, and it can make me just a little bit, a little bit wiggy, you know, not that I'm not anyway, but it, but it can really mess with me because I feel this responsibility now that, you know, I'm, I'm her family, I'm my daughter's family. And so I've got to suddenly, um, be, be this, um, you know, this guy that's going to, that's going to outlive, you know, everybody on earth until she's done with me. And I know that's, you know, completely flawed and, uh, self-absorbed and all that, but that, that fits into my MO pretty well, but, um, but it, it just is where I go. And, um, and I'm really trying to find that balance because I'm just finding myself being, um, really consumed by that. So that's, uh, that's kind of where I am on it. Thanks. Thanks, David. Uh, well, I'm Nate. Um, hey, Nate. and, and I, I thought, I thought of you on your birthday, David, because uh, ironically, <laughs> yeah, because your birthday is my birthday. Um, yeah, I, uh, I've come. I am coming to recognize, I guess, that my health is something that I can influence but not control, uh, and I do need to exercise whatever influence I can without falling prey to the idea that I can control everything. Uh, yeah, I too am coming to terms with my mortality, uh, looking at the the gray hairs in the mirror and the wrinkles appearing on the face. Yeah, I, I didn't do that. I didn't think about my health at all as a young man or even during my years of active addiction. Uh, one of the benefits of growing up a geek is that I never had any nagging athletic injuries. Uh, you, know, you know, never screwed anything playing chess. That didn't happen. Uh, so, uh, so, so, uh, you know, so I, I never, I never broke a bone. Uh, I never even thought about my body and uh, abused it, really, uh, neglected it. So when I got into recovery, uh, one of the things that I did not expect was that my early sponsors really focused me on uh, radical self-care and taking care of my taking care of my body because, as one of my sponsors explained to me, and I'm sure I've said many times on this program, I am an embodied spirit, and my physical health is going to affect my spiritual health and vice versa. Um, that being said. Uh, you know, my wife now uh, uh, dealing with cancer and all the devastating effects of it, um, and we're just scrambling. We're doing everything we possibly can uh, to give her a good outcome. So I think my present goal is to um, is to have at least one appointment with every alternative practitioner within the greater Nashville area. Um, and uh we're 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 making good progress on that list and she's had some she's had some good outcomes and then some outcomes that were disappointing um at the same time that we're doing what, everything we can do to get, to influence her health uh having to having to accept the fact that we can't control it 
that it's mysterious and that we do live in a fallen world and uh man that's a hard thing to accept uh without going just to, to uh you know cynicism and despair i woke up at five o'clock this morning just panicked uh a fear i haven't experienced here in a few months it's been or a few weeks anyway it's been out of my mind but suddenly at five o'clock in this morning uh, in, in the in the morning i just woke up you know convinced that the cancer is going to come back and there's nothing we can do and um wow uh at the same time i uh i am doing my best to stay focused on my own health and and do those uh, just uh stop the willful self destruction of this body that god gave me and to uh, to do whatever i can to take care of the vehicle for my spirit um and to, so that I can be available for service in this world for as long as possible. That's me. Thanks. Thanks, Nate. Thanks, Nate. Well, we will be right back with uh, the interview with the man that you met. Mr. David will be back talking about his new book and his uh, experience of the last year and his time and Samson in the very beginning. So we'll be back on the Pirate Month radio program. Monk podcast with a very special interview, uh, a rare return visit from a guest, uh, but uh, it's so glad to have him back with us, uh, songwriter, musician, composer, uh, worship leader, now author and speaker, David Hampton. Thanks, David, for joining us. Oh, man. Thank you, Nate. It's always great to get to sit down and talk with you and be a part of this. I really enjoy it. Well, um let's uh let's let's before we get kind of the crux of the story and I do want to talk about the new book. Uh selfishly, I'd love to hear just a few reminiscences about uh, early Samson memories since you were one of the original pirate monks. Uh 
Do you remember that first meeting in the lady oh. parlor? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. I think they had to. I think they had to burn sage in that room after we were done. <laughs> but I think, yeah, it was. Oh, it was a really. It was a great night. It was the riskiest night because none of us knew what we were really uh, being invited into. I mean, there was no. Uh, there was nothing that had preceded it, you know, in our in our lives uh, like that to uh, to to gauge it by. So the only thing I knew to do was to show up and lie like I did to all the other meetings I went to. <laughs> <laughs> how, how tight how tight was the format in that first meeting? Was it the same as the format now, or did you do a lot of modifications? Well, it pretty much is, I think. I don't think yeah, we modified it much too much. It was, yeah, it was pretty nailed down because, you know, the guys had spent some time, Nate and a couple of the guys that really had been helping think it through had really spent some time, uh, you know, on what does this need to look like before we invite, um, you know, this this uh, test pilot group together. And uh, so I think it was pretty much the same format. Yeah. Yeah. Uh but we were, uh, you, yeah. It was. It was. I remember just kind of some awkward silences in that first meeting. Long uh, ones, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> People were jumping onto the floor, and then yeah. I don't know. Whether, I, I don't know whether you remember it, but I remember that Bunker was there, and that was only the second time I'd met Bunker. Oh um, yeah. Yeah, and he he just he just toward the end he just kind of. He just kind of showed us how it was done, just kind of cannonballed in the middle of the Wow. Yeah. Now, you kept, yeah, coming, you kept coming back, but there was there, – it was it was a, a while before you really became transparent, wasn't it, David? Oh, it was, yeah. I kept coming back because I was, I was so drawn by the um, – the honesty of these guys and the things they were willing to share, but I was still so convinced that mine would have been uh, just too much. You know, yeah. um, this is this is great for all the, all of them, and I really like watching them do it. It's kind of like you know spectator sports. I'm fascinated, you know, how they can hit that ball with their head and make it go through the net, but I personally <laughs> don't really care to get out there and try it. Um, and <laughs> Judgment, 
And um, <laughs> so, uh, and my wife was getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And, uh, you know, she struggled for many, many years with a very progressive form of MS. And so she was getting sicker, and the sicker she got, the sicker I got. And when I got invited into Samson, I thought, you know, if if I really ever had the guts to tell somebody the truth, this might be what could save my life. But it so, took so did, about a did year. Know? Did anybody know what was going on with your alcoholism? No, no, no. I used to, in fact, you know, I would I would throw out little hints, you know, at friends and say, you know, I I've been drinking a lot, or I'm wondering if I might have a problem. And of course, you know, your friends don't want you to have a problem, and they all would say, well, you don't drink any more than I do, you know. And I'm, I think, well, yeah, when I'm around you. You know, I don't. <laughs> you don't see me, you know, at, at home when nobody's around or whatever. And uh, watching me start at four in the afternoon and try to hide it through the night, and you know, and all the stuff that was going on. So nobody really knew. Nobody really knew that. And 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 I really learned quickly that when we have problems, especially within the church like this, uh, we minimize stuff for one another so much. Um, we make it so easy for everybody to stay in there crap, you know, um, because we just don't want them to have it. And so we try to find every way in the world for it not to be true. And what I realized in the Samson meeting was that it was really okay to come in there and say, this is where I am. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm thinking about doing. And um, and it's not turning out so well. And um, yeah. But it took me a year, probably. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and... Uh, so when you finally got honest, David, and mm-hmm. uh, did you have expectations that, you know, finally surrendering that deal, uh, surrendering to the process, it was going to have a positive payoff for uh, Patricia's health, that everything was oh, going to sure. turn around? Yeah. Yeah, I I just looked at it as one more way I was going to bargain with God, which was pretty much how I approached my spirituality anyway, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll give you two fewer nights on the internet if you'll make this other thing come through for me, you know. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where you know, God and I were kind of trying to work things out and um, you know, seriously, I was really um thinking that if I got better, um it, Trisha's thing would get more manageable somehow. Maybe she wouldn't get well, but she would quit. She would quit getting worse, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and so I really had I had big expectations about sobriety and what it would look. And I thought everybody would just celebrate me so much for doing it, you know. <laughs> there was no parade. There was no you know big dinner in my honor at my house, you know. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, took yeah, my yeah. daughter three years to believe me, you know, and yeah, 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 um yeah. and my wife was just kind of indifferent by that point. She had so much stuff of her own going on that, that I'd have my first sobriety birthday and everybody was kinda like, You want us to celebrate you not doing something you shouldn't have done in the first place? Help yeah. you know <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that's kind of the climate it was. But, yeah, I certainly had, oh, man, I had my list of the way life was going to turn out, and I was going to be, you know, experiencing all kinds of great, wonderful things because I submitted myself to this, and that wasn't exactly how it went. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just to make it clear, you got sober in AA, right? I did. And, you know, you know, uh, you don't certainly remember because Nate was really – 
the first person I went to because I figured, you know, if he could tell his stuff, he could handle mine because I kind of, you know, joked with him that I may be a drunk, but I'm not a pervert. And so (laughs) (laughs) I kind of have my hierarchy in my head, you know, about how this works. (laughs) And so I kind of, I went to Nate and I said, you know, I think I might have a drinking problem, which was, you know, again, like, you know, Mussolini saying I might need anger management or something because I just thought, you know, I kind of have this thing I do and it's, you know, it's kind of bad, but it's not terrible, but I might be drinking a lot. And of course, Nate, you know, just knew immediately that I was completely underselling this. And, and he said, finally, you know, after listening to me for God knows how long whine and carry on about it, uh, he said, you know, well, have you ever been to an AA meeting? And I, and I, I think I literally said at that moment, why would I go to an AA meeting? You know, I'm not an alcoholic. I drink like one, but I'm not an alcoholic. And he was like, <laughs> and he was like, well, why don't why don't we go? And and the beauty about working with Nate was that Nate didn't say they meet down at the Methodist Church at noon uh, during the week. He said, let's go. And he meant he was taking me, and he did, and he took me to a few. And then I kind of started sneaking into them, you know, by myself because I would have rather been, seriously, rather been caught coming out of a strip club than an AA meeting because I just had all this baggage about what that meant and what that looked like. And, uh, and of course, you know, in the height of your addiction, you're just, you know, completely self-absorbed anyway, so you think that everybody's watching you. So I was pretty sure that everybody in Franklin, you know, after two trips to AA knew I was I was in AA, you know. But, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but it took me a while tell, to tell me about that hear first the, meeting. Like when you went to well, that first meeting, what did you experience? The first, the first meeting, I thought, well, I haven't done, you know, 75% of the things I'm hearing people talk about in this meeting, so maybe I don't have a problem. But the 25% of the things I did have in common with them were pretty big. You know, waking up, not remembering uh, things, not remembering conversations, um, lying, hiding, uh, you know, all the stuff that went along with it. I may not have left my car in Paducah, but I definitely could relate to the guy that doesn't remember conversations after 8 o'clock at night. Because um, I was drinking every day, you know. I drank every day for five years, and, and every day ended just about the same way, you know, um, with me in some version of drinking myself to sleep or passing out or not quite making it to bed or making it up in the middle of the night and waking up in a different room than I started out in and and all of this was going on, you know. And so um, that first AA meeting, I was just listening to people recount this stuff and I thought, well, the majority of it I'm I'm not relating to. But Nate told me, listen for the similarities and not the differences. And as I began to listen to that it changed a little bit but what changed even more was their approach to surrender and confession and freedom was very different than my experience in the church and i really couldn't figure that out i was i was really i was really taken by the fact that these people could sit in this circle say the things that they have and actually clap for one another you know because the first time i ever said i'm david and i'm an alcoholic and this is the first time I've ever said that out loud, the room clapped for me, mm-hmm. you know, and they don't do that when you come forward and confess your sin at church, <laughs> you know, at least not in, not in mine, <laughs> yeah. you know, I haven't, I haven't been clapped for before like that at the altar. So, um, <laughs> so it was fascinating to me that that was where freedom started for these people. And then I just became more and more involved in it and then ended up with a sponsor in AA who was, 
uh, a sponsor of mine for many years, and he was and he is a great great guy. But but he didn't let me BS him about stuff. His meter was much more well tuned than the people I encountered in church. Right. And um, he didn't let me say those inane things and get by with it like I can at church. And so I learned we were playing a whole different game uh, entering yeah. into this step work. You know, that was a whole different uh, paradigm. Yeah, yeah. And how did uh, that experience in recovery um, begin to shape, alter uh, your spiritual experience, your religious understanding, your Christian faith? Was there an effect? And if so, what was it? Well, it really really impacted me in a way that I didn't anticipate in that I – I ended up taking what I consider everything I thought I knew as a Christian and putting it up on the shelf and having to add it back in um, a little at a time. And some of it made it back and some of it didn't. Um, Because I realized what I had called my Christian faith was just a bunch of answers that I had learned to parrot like I was selling soap door to door, you know. Yeah. Um, I had learned how to, you know, make the argument for this and how to how to respond with the proper theological perspective if someone ever confronts you with that. And, um, you know, I knew all our positions on hell and baptism and all this stuff. But it was just really like learning the manual for me. And I'm not yeah. saying that I don't think I was a Christian, but I'm saying that my Christianity strictly was a an answer-driven, parroted um, thing that, that I didn't own, and and then when I got into recovery, um, and I and I really began to learn completely um, different paradigms about surrender and and not not controlling life and letting go and and making amends and and learning to um, not take hostages, uh, and you know I, all of that just began to challenge all my stuff. So I went up to a I went up to a monastery, and I and I went up there for a week first uh, with these Benedictine monks, and because uh, I didn't trust the Presbyterians anymore, <laughs> so <laughs> I I thought, well, you know, that I I don't I don't know how that's going to work. So so I went up, and the and the monk who was my spiritual guide, he he joked with me, he said, well, you must be really screwed up for the Presbyterians to agree for the Catholics to get a hold of you, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I said, you know, I I am, I think. And I just began to ask all my questions, and I began to just fire it out. And he began to help me sift through um, what was authentic about what I believed and what was just stuff I might want to leave on the on the sidelines, you know, for for a while. And, and I went up there once a month uh, for six months um, just to kind of continue to tune up, so to speak. And... Um, Recovery recovery caused me to question my faith in the best possible way. Um, I didn't leave um, I didn't leave the church, but I feel like I'm sort of now the the voice in the wilderness in the church a little bit. Um, but ironically, I'm also the guy that people call when there's this other thing going on that they don't want to tell the pastors about. So yeah. it's kind of a weird <laughs> it's kind of a weird position you find yourself in. But it it impacted me greatly because I had to sift through everything I thought I knew. And start over. How how did your superiors at church respond when they found out what you were going through? Well, I was really, 
Yeah, I was really clever about that because I waited until I'd been sober a year to tell any of my pastors or any of my elders what I was doing. Um, and nobody knew I was going to AA, and people knew I was in Samson, but that was okay, you know. Um, mm. But I didn't tell them for a year. And so after – because I didn't – A, I didn't want to fail in front of them. I really didn't because I had quit about 136 times before this, you know, <laughs> with not much success. And um, and I was wanting to know, is this the thing that's different? Is it as different as I think it is? And I didn't want to weigh in early because, you know, your first month or so, you want to go blow trumpets and tell everybody, hey, guess what I did? I quit drinking successfully or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I told my pastor – Finally, you know, one day I just said, I need you to know, here's where I was, here's what happened to me, and here's where I am. And um, and he said, why did why did you wait? Why, why wouldn't you trust me with that? And I said, it wasn't that I didn't trust you with that. I'm not sure I trusted me. And um, and I also, the, the, the bigger, probably the bigger part was, I figured if there was enough of, like, statute of limitations between me and when I was acting out and all that really negative behavior that they couldn't mm -hmm. fire me because I could say, well, it'd been a year, you know, gosh, that was a year ago. I mean, <laughs> you're going to fire me for cleaning the floor a year ago. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, um, yeah. life um, in a lot of ways got better, uh, but in other ways didn't change. Um, right. Yeah. Talk to us about the intervening years and especially your last few months, David. Well, right. As I got um, healthier, uh, my wife got sicker, and that wasn't part of my uh, contract with God. Uh, I didn't. I didn't think that um, I had signed on for for that. I thought that life was going to get better all the way around, and. Um, I, I quit drinking, uh, it's been almost eight and a half years ago, and um, the last seven years, Trisha was in bed, uh, in a hospital bed in our home. Her MS progressed to a point where she was no longer weight-bearing and mobile, and um, she had to have, you know, a, a colostomy and a urostomy and a bunch of uh, personal care that I had to learn to give her because we only had insurance that covered um, one nurse visit a week and two nurse tech visits a week. And um, things happened a whole lot more frequently than that that required yeah. care, and I was the one that had to be trained to do it. And uh, so we bring in this hospital bed, and that required us bringing in a Hoyer lift so we could move her, and then we had to have a power wheelchair to get her around in, and then we had to have a, a wheelchair van to put her up in if she ever went to a doctor appointment or went out. and. Um, and life just got more and more and more uh, complicated, to say the very least. It became – her care became the pivotal thing at our house. You know, it was the mm -hmm. thing that we had to work everything around. Um, I had to manage my, my meetings, my work uh, around um, who could come in and turn Trisha, who could bring her lunch. If I had to be out of town, you know, who could come and stay over? Do we pay caregivers? I mean, all that just had to become – a, a huge part of our lives and she was in and out of care facilities when she was still trying to use a walker she broke bones and for about three years she was in and out of care facilities healing from some injury or another uh, for you know let the me, better part of that time let me interrupt you here uh, before yeah. you move on. I know for so many of us when we go through stories where we're forced uh forced to be the hero 
and the victim of the story. Mm -hmm. For years, that becomes a huge part of our identity, whether we like it or not, because we're the martyr. So we become both entitled and disconnected and arrogant and broken. Right. So what, what was happening in your identity while well, you're having to seriously reshape your life around serving the woman you married? Well, one of the first things I discovered in my recovery was that a victim with a sense of entitlement is dangerous. And so, um, and I was that, that when I was drinking, that's what I was because I deserved it. And, you know, by God, nobody was going to get between me and it, uh, you know, I deserved it. Here's what's happened to me. You know, if God's got a problem with it, he can change this anytime. And um, other than that, I'm on, you know. And that's where that's how I approached my drinking, first first of all, how I justified it. Right. And as I got so sober, I didn't have room for the victim anymore because um, the victim was dangerous to me. Um, but that, that's, so, like, that's the addict side. And then the other side is that, the martyr who takes Jesus off the cross and says, I get to be the one on the cross mm-hmm. and put their identity on that is equally as dangerous on the heroic side. Oh, right, right. Because you can believe that you're actually the one doing this. <laughs> you know, and I was. You know, I used to, in my bitterness, I would say, you know, um, people would say, well, you know, Jesus is serving your wife through you. And I said, no, Jesus is not showing up at 2 a.m. and changing poop bags. Thank you very much. Um, I am. I'm the one getting up out of bed and doing that. You know, and uh, I had moved into a room across the hall. Trish had a little doorbell that she rang that, you know, rang in my room, and and that was my cue to jump and run. And so, yeah, I had a whole bunch of that, um, the martyr syndrome and, and all of that. And what it does is, you know, chronic illness takes everything that you already deal with, and it just turns it up to 11. It really isn't that my issues changed. It's just that they became more magnified, I think. And, you know, your victim does, your martyr does, uh, your identity as um, the person that um, sees yourself in all these different ways, I think, it, it gets exacerbated by it. And um, and so we lived we lived in that for a long time, and, and my recovery kind of had to... Um, had to happen in spite of things getting harder at home. And so I always had an opportunity to apply these new perspectives I was I was coming to find, you know, um, in, in different ways. So, um, yeah. Hey, David, did, did honesty – a few minutes ago you said something about how we minimize our problems for each other in the church. And then you got into a, a program where honesty is – was necessary and it's how you survived was by being honest. Did right. honesty around did honesty around drinking and alcoholism help you with honesty about being a caregiver and the emotions that, that you were and have been dealing with? Yes, because I learned that it was okay for me to hate it and to say so. Um, you know, it it was okay for me to um not not um you know try to try to say all these beautiful flowery spiritual things when people would talk about what I was doing for Trisha because there were days where I despised being me and it was uh, it was okay for me to say that because I had begun to practice that honesty in other areas of my life and I think it actually probably helped keep me sane you know yeah um david you uh 
you've written a new book. Uh, you're, it, it doesn't surprise me at all that you're, you're, uh, you have become or are very much becoming in demand as a speaker. You're a wonderful speaker. I've always thought that. Uh, and, and I love your... Uh, Nate, Nate yeah. you, you really just skip over the end of the story because I'm like, no. what happened here? No, no, no. We're gonna we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. Just check. It's not that I don't trust you, but I don't trust you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The the book is "Our Authentic Selves." The title uh, subtitle is "Reflections on What We Believe and What We Wish We Believed," and that subtitle just really it tears me apart. It's a it's a wonderful subtitle, and I, I I love when you talk about this tension between what we believe and what we wish we believe. Um, in in the past, uh, you know, uh, David David, uh, you lost your wife. I did on May sixth of this year. Yeah. 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 Trisha went uh, to heaven on May sixth. She died. Um, you know, I say both of those because, um, you know, the, the church, and again, in a good way, we have that hope, and, and, I, and I'm clinging to it. You know, she did go to heaven on May 6th, but in my world, she died. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's a difference in, in, in my world because of that. I was with her when she did, and uh, my daughter was with her, and, um, and it was not graceful. And it was not the most beautiful experience. Um, it was, you know, it was the day was beautiful. We had people in our home that day. We knew that it was very close, and we had probably 70 people that came through my house that day, and they prayed with her, and they sang to her, and it was a beautiful day. But her death was not. And um, and that is why, um, in as much as I'm I'm comforted by her being in heaven and that she's whole and that she's complete. Um, I still, I still have that piece of us that, that I saw of death, of how ugly death is, you know, Mm. and that stays Mm. with me, um, somehow, because sometimes we sanitize death, um, because of our hope, but it was really very ugly. It just was really, it was very, very, very hard. And so, um, yeah, I lost her, and um, and and I'm ki- I'm kind of starting from the ground up now, rethinking. Um, you know, first of all, what do I do with all this time? <laughs> you know, seriously, <laughs> I've got all this time. You know, <laughs> it's like I wake up in the morning, I don't have to do anything for an hour before I get ready. I don't have to make sure I'm home by two to turn her. I don't have to get a caregiver to go out of town, and I've got this kind of wide open, clean canvas to to live from. But at the same time, um, it's very difficult to rethink who you are, you know. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, but the book was in the works before Trisha passed away. We were actually editing it when she passed away, and um, and then it came out just very shortly, you know, in July, um, at the end of July, uh, after she'd only been gone maybe a couple of months. So. Yeah. Yeah. And you were up speaking to thousands of men. Uh, I can't even imagine how you did that in the 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 rawness and yet the distance. How are you feeling now? Um, where where would you put yourself in the grief stage, and where would you put yourself in the faith journey? Um, yeah, yeah, that's a good question. 
my my grief stage is sort of like watching a Bally pinball machine. <laughs> I don't do the timeline <laughs> grief very well. I kind of just bounce and ping back and forth from stuff. I went from, you know, I was I, I went to her grave on her birthday. We've had a lot of firsts in the amount of time she's been gone. Our wedding anniversary was August 28th, and her birthday was September 13th, and mine was September 17th. And I went to the cemetery on her birthday, um, and and I went sad, you know, and yeah. then I left angry, uh, you know, yeah. and I realized I was really pissed off at her because the last few years that she was alive, she didn't let me get her a birthday gift because she couldn't reciprocate it, you know, and she felt bad because she couldn't do something for me, so she made me agree just not to get her anything for her birthday. And yeah. so I'm at her grave, and I'm bringing her flowers for her birthday, and I'm going, You're, this is probably going to piss you off because I'm bringing you these flowers, but i got to do something because you didn't let me do anything the last six or seven years you were sick. And I'm really starting to realize how pissed off I am at you about this. And so yeah. it kind of it was, you know, that's me grieving, actually, you know. Yeah. And exactly. uh, But then I fall into this, you know, kind of heaving, sobbing mess by the end of it. And there's my sadness back again, you know, and, and uh, so I just kind of, I do that. I just kind of hang around all the, all the little places that grief takes you. Yeah. And, and yeah. spiritually, um, it has really, um, I, I don't want to say it's been a freeing thing, but um, it's like the, you know, it's like the guy that's on the news that got shot in the 7-Eleven robbery and he lived. And he says, wow, I used to fear getting shot, but now I've, I've been shot and I lived and I'm not afraid of it anymore. And that's mm-hmm. kind of how I feel. I kind of don't, I, I don't feel fearless, but I, I fear less things. And, and mm-hmm. uh, because I've seen the worst has happened to me that I could think of at the time. Um, and God, in whatever ways, provided people and strength and hope and courage that, that came in all different forms. And, um, and I'm here, you know. So, um, so spiritually, it's actually kind of been a freeing thing. Yeah. Wow. And this, and this book, heaven forbid, we call it devotional. We'll call it this book with <laughs> very short chapters that can be read in one sitting. That's uh, right. <laughs> well, I told the publisher not to call it a devotional because they said you're just spraying it with people repellent, and no one will buy it. So. <laughs> yeah, you're you're just uh, you're the kind of author that gets bored with his own chapter by one page. So That's right. this, uh, this book for people with short attention spans. How, like, clearly there's so much of what you've talked about through the journey of recovery through the journey of identity in your caregiving. All of that is about trying to find out who are you in Christ, who mm-hmm. is this authentic self. So how? tell me about the journey of deciding that you needed to put this on paper. Well, the, the book came together from initially me uh, starting to blog. And I just began to blog about the insights that I was having because uh, writing for me has always been kind of a cathartic thing. Whether anybody ever read it or not, it was just great for me to get it on paper and see it, um, kind of like saying it aloud and then it becomes real. That's kind of what writing is for me. And and so it's helped me formulate um, my thoughts and become more clear, uh, even as I write it, about what what has happened to me and where I, where I used to be and where I am now, what I used to think about certain things and what I think now. And, um, and that's just been, you know, part of my ongoing 
ongoing journey and processing it. Um, but it's in writing the book that a lot of clarity, um, I, I would say a lot of clarity came together for me and what I had experienced, but I hadn't quite articulated yet. So. Mm. So what conclusions did you come to in writing it in this form that were surprising to you? Well, I think for me, I came to the conclusion that, A, um, it is okay to not be completely uh, 100% sure of some things. I don't know is a pretty freeing statement. It's okay for me not to know. It's okay for me not to be certain. It's okay for me to be open-ended. Um, I don't I don't live a very nailed down um, theology, and I don't and that scares people when I say that. And, and if I unpack that, it would be better. But um, I am not a person that's going to die on the hill of infant baptism, for instance. And as a Presbyterian, again, that's going to probably cause me a problem. But <laughs> um, but there are just things that I don't know about that we do. And there are things that I do know about very clearly, and that is that I do believe God truly loves me, he wants relationship with me, and that I am the point, not my marriage, not my job, not my persona, but that I am the point, that he wants relationship with me. And um, and those are things that, that make me uh, my authentic self, not the person I had to conjure up to keep my job or the person I had to conjure up to to not threaten people uh, or the person I had to conjure up to even take care of Tricia in some ways, you know, mm-hmm. but that there is a person here that God wants to know and wants me to know. And, um, and that's what I'm writing about, I think. Oh, wow. Well, where can people get this book and uh, how can they get in touch with you? Well, Amazon uh, is going – well, Amazon has my book, and Amazon is doing a free Kindle download on Friday, um, mm-hmm. by the way. Friday for one day, September 27th, uh, is a free Kindle download of the book. And if you would like to participate in that and write a review on Amazon of what you, uh, what you think, of how it affects you, uh, we would love, love that. Um, the book is also available on the Barnes & Noble website. It's available um, on my website, uh, davidbhampton.com. Um, and it's uh, available at um, uh, the Christ Community website as well, christcommunity.com uh, bookstore. All right. Fantastic. And uh, and if people want to uh, get in touch with you, they can do that through the website, David? Right, David B. B is in Brian. David B. Hampton. dot com, and they can get in touch with me there. Um, and I take uh, most of my speaking engagements through someone that's uh, linked on my website, and uh, anything like that that you, you know, my email is there. Feel free to email me directly. I'd love to hear from guys and uh, just hear what's going on in your heads and your hearts about this kind of stuff. Okay. Well, it has been a privilege, David, to have this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the time has flown. We've kind of reached the end of our hour. Uh, we are very much in your debt, David. It's been a oh, good visit. Thank you has so much, for... Yeah. Go ahead, David. I'm sorry. Well, I, I just was going to thank you guys for, for having me again and, and talking with me. I really, really enjoyed it. Okay.
All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up now. Uh, we will uh, we'll see you next week. Until then, uh, I'm Nate Larkin here with Aaron Porter, Mondo Grimes, Newton Dominey, uh, our executive producer Jay Spiegel, and our special guest David Hampton. We'll see you next week here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Whoa!